Thank you. Well, it really is a privilege and honor to, to be able to preach today, to open up the Word, and to think about it. I've been thinking about it all week. I've been studying and reading, and uh, to tell you the truth, it's a fairly difficult passage. So I'm going to let you go ahead and open it up, and then we'll, we'll dive into it here soon, but it's going to be Luke. I'm sorry, we're in John. It's going to be John chapter 2, verse 13 through 25. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But I want to start with a question. I just want to ask you something. Have you ever been angry? Have you ever been angry? Has something ever just eaten you up? Well, if the answer is yes, something you may not know is that your Savior, Jesus, can relate to that. He can relate to anger. So the next question that I want to ask you is, for those of you that would say, no, I've never really been angry before, why are you asleep? You need to wake up. There's plenty of stuff for us to be angry about. There's a lot of things in this world that are broken. It should evoke different emotions in us, sadness. But anger is a very justified response to a lot of the earth and the world's brokenness. Matter of fact, some poets from the 80s, the Run DMCs of the 80s, they had a song called Wake Up. And it had this loop. Wake up. Get up. Wake up. Get up. And then they, would, then they said, when I woke up this morning and I got out of bed, I had some really fresh thoughts running through my head. They were the thoughts that came from a wonderful dream. It was the vision of the world working as a team. Ah, it was a dream. Wake up. Get up. So even Run DMC could look around and they could see that the world was broken. They could see that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And so they wrote a song about it. They talk about wars. They talk about all kinds of stuff. But they could look around them and they could say, you know what? Part of the reason there's brokenness, their answer was just the thought that we must really be sleeping. Because why aren't we addressing these problems? Why aren't there solutions to these problems that are going on? Here's a few things that, that might make you angry. We landed a man on the moon in 1969 and 47 years of better technology and global cooperation. 21,000 people die of starvation a day. Four every second. Mostly children. That should evoke in you some compassion. I want to feed. I want to, but it should also make you feel a little angry. How is this happening? And a lot of this happens right here in Tennessee. As of last Wednesday morning, there have been 1,413,820,530 abortions worldwide since 1980. In the 1040 window, a major part of the world, there are 5,570 unreached people groups, a population of 2.97 billion people that don't know the gospel of Christ. In a sense, that should anger you. With When you go to a Christian bookstore here in America, it shouldn't anger you that we have so many resources. You shouldn't get mad that you get to be fed. That shouldn't make you angry. But there should be something in you when you think about the rest of the world and how much resource we have, especially the gospel message that doesn't even take a Christian bookstore, just takes faithful people to go out into the world, that there's still that many people that aren't hearing about the good news of Jesus. There should be compassion, but there should also be a sense of anger that's going on. Why is this happening? How can this be happening? We have airplanes now. We have finances to go. You go into the world, you go into these places where People thought, missionaries thought, that no one has ever been before. 
And they go to tell people about Jesus, and they get into those little places, and there they are, popping up a bottle of Coke, drinking a Coke. Coke got pretty angry with their financial bank account and said, you know what, we could have more money. There's a whole market out there in the world. All we have to do is get our Coke out there, and you know what, they've done it. They've done it because they were dissatisfied. They were dissatisfied with the world not having Coca-Cola. I like Coca-Cola. But there should be something that evokes a passion within us for the fact that the gospel's not going out into all the world. Racism should anger you. Cancer, disease, divorce, child abuse, orphans, illiteracy, homelessness, sex trafficking. And just even right now, just thinking of Carly Marie Trent right now. I don't know if there's any news, but she's been abducted. And sitting in a coffee shop, nice and comfortable, looking through commentaries, you know, thinking about my life and the difficulties I have. I'm going to be preaching this Sunday on Jesus clearing the temple. Oh, this is so hard. Life is tough. And all around the coffee shop, alerts start going off on everybody's phones. Breaks my heart, but it makes me mad. Yeah, I'd like to sit with the uncle if this is who took her. I'd like to sit down with him. And and I, I know hurting people hurt people. I get that. But I'm not a strong dude, but I, I probably would punch him in the face. That would probably be what I do. I'm, I don't like that. I don't like the thought of that, and neither do you. No one does. No one likes the fact that we have to have amber alerts. It should break our hearts, but it should make us angry. I went to meet a buddy right after I was thinking about these things, that things just are broken. They're not the way they're supposed to be in a park right beside a cemetery. Okay? It's not supposed to be like this. We can make it as pretty as we can. I passed by, you know, if you can say, I passed by a beautiful cemetery down the street today. The lawns were freshly cut. There's flowers. There's a man out there probably either his wife or his mother had passed away. It's a beautiful cemetery, but there's really nothing beautiful about it. It's death. Then there's dishonest business deals. should make you angry. Those of you that are in the business world and in the marketplace, you could tell me story after story of you sitting down with someone, working a deal out, and you could see right away that, wait a minute, this guy is not telling the truth. Or this guy is trying to take advantage of us because he hears that we're a Christian company. It should anger you. You shouldn't think, ah, no big deal. I'm just going to show him the love of Jesus. Maybe the love that he needs to see is you saying, I, I'm sorry. This deal might not go any further. Last night, I had a, a really awesome experience. I was at a coffee shop. Y'all can tell me how to say it. Spiro coffee? Sparrow coffee? Exactly. I don't think any of you have ever been there because there was only a few people there and they were all high school students. So I walk into this coffee shop and I'm, I'm going over my notes and in and out of this coffee shop, there's about 11 different high school students, mainly graduates, uh, 11th and 12th grade students that come in and they're just talking and I hear some of them, they're they're speaking of religious matters, and it's, it's fairly exciting. And so I just say, hey, is it okay if I do a survey in here? And they're like, yeah, 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 we like to participate in things. You know, so who, who talks like that? These are some smart kids up here in Knoxville. I said, tell me some stuff that makes you mad. They're like, oh. 
I said, come on, at least three things. So I, I did this survey three times because different people kept coming in and out. So here's some of the things that are making the teenagers mad these days. Traffic in Knoxville. False teachings. One kid was like, false teachings make me angry. People not knowing what they're talking about. Distress, one guy said, disrespecting women in my family. I said, well, what about just women in general? Is that okay? And he said, of course not. I said, but I know what you mean, specifically if it's your mom. You don't talk about my mom. You know, there's something that you, you don't do that. Neglecting your dog. And then one girl says, I really hate it when people come in here and they're like, oh, Starbucks is so much better. That really makes her angry. One kid said Donald Trump. Stress. Unpastoral pastors was the direct words. Hypocrites. Interruptions. And I told the guy, I said, what'd you say? And he said, Inter I said, what'd you say? And he said, Inter and I kept interrupting him. And it took him 10 times, really four times. That's the, that's the interrupting cow knock-knock joke that you can apply right there. And he was getting angry, and then he laughed because he saw that I was just being stupid. One person just said a lot of things. And then one girl said, and she really did say it like this. She said, my boss, she's like bipolar. She's like, you're the best. And then she's like, oh, I hate you. She's like, I hate that. That makes me really angry. I was like, yeah, that would be tough. That's a tough environment. Um, and one person said, food smacking makes me mad. Raise your hand. Okay. There's a name for it. And one of the students even yesterday said, yeah, it's called this. And I don't remember what it is. But food smacking makes people angry. One person said, when I get my feet dirty. I said, what, when you're like, you know, at the grocery store shopping? Um, they're like, yeah, just when I get my feet dirty. And then one guy, he was standing up and he just said, and I'll just say right after he said this, everybody just busted out laughing. And this is his new title. He said, well, I'm a rock climber. And they just busted out laughing about that because he just began by saying, well, I'm a rock climber. And I re it really makes me mad when I get chalk up under my fingernails. And then there's other situations before we think that our high school students are a little too trivial. Slow internet. Nowhere to park. Literally, spilt milk. Spilt milk. Somebody spilt something this morning somewhere in one of your houses, probably, and you might have got mad about that. Your team losing can make you angry. Your team losing to a scrub team can make you angry. Your team losing to a scrub team on your homecoming can really make you mad. Being forgotten by your kids or your husband on Mother's Day, your restaurant order not being correct, oh, the incompetency of people. These are only a few things that can make us angry. You could see the wide variety of things that can make us angry, that drive our passions, that can, can actually eat us up. And you can also see within that, wait a minute, some of those things are trivial. Some of those things really matter. My daughter Sophie was reading this book this week. It's part of the Magic Treehouse series. I'm sorry if you don't like reading books that have the word magic in it. Uh, but it's this great, great book series of these, this brother and sister who climb up in a treehouse. And I don't know exactly how it works, but they point to something and then magically they appear in this they appear in that reality somewhere. My daughter reads this book. She's nine years old. She reads this book. She, wake up, she wakes up in the morning, and she tells 
my wife Sherry, she needs to read this book. Oh, Mom, you've got to read this book. And then that evening she tells me, Dad, you've got to read this book. Our daughter has never done that before. Now, she reads one of these books almost every night, but she's never said, oh, you've got to read this book. And so what do you do when your daughter says, oh, you got to read this book? Well, hopefully you read this book. And honestly, I was like, I, I'd rather just watch Netflix. But what grabbed her? So it's a book about the Civil War. And these two little kids in their magic treehouse, they land in the middle of a war. And people are wounded the boy is real scared. The girl is like, what do we do? Long story short, they wind up helping as like caring. And they become like these nurses. And they're caring for people. And so this, the, the brother, the older one, the brother, he walks into this one tent. And it's, it's, it's Confederate soldiers. It's Union soldiers. They're all mixed. And he walks in there and he's looking down because he's scared. He doesn't like what he's seeing. Death is around him. People are hurting. And he looks down and he's not looking at people. It gives them water. It's part of a solution to a problem. Giving them water. He walks into the next tent and he notices, wait a minute. These aren't white soldiers. These are black soldiers. And he still... He's overwhelmed by the circumstance. He's overwhelmed by the situation. And he keeps giving water. And the last man he gives a cup of water to, an old black man with gray hair, says, thank you, son. And this boy looks up. And he says, what's going on here? And this man begins to share about the war that's going on. And then, and then the boy, one of the things that the nurses told him to do was bring encouragement, bring encouragement. So the boy, he's finally looking at somebody in the face and he says, you know what? Okay, I'm going to bring him encouragement. And he says, oh, this will be over and you'll be back with your family. And the man says, no, son. That's not going to happen. My family was sold into slavery years ago. We are all separated. It's never going to happen. And then the little boy is just thinking, oh, wow. And he goes on, and he turns around, and he comes back, and he says, but one day, one day your grandsons are going to be teachers and doctors and governors and senators, and this book was written before, and presidents. There was something about this book that just grabbed my daughter. It was a, I think it's probably the most real book outside of the Bible that she's ever read. And it was a brokenness. And it's not supposed to be like this, but yet there's, there's some hope. It's not supposed to be like this. You can all think about your life right now. Even Mother's Day. There's, there's some of you out there right now that are dealing with infer infertility. And the very thought of Mother's Day breaks your heart. Not because you don't love mothers or love your own mother. You just want to be a mom. Or you've, you're a mother that's lost a child. Or you're a child that's lost a mother. Just things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. But you see, Jesus saw this more clearly than anyone that's ever walked the earth. That things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. Matter of fact, this is why Christ came. Because He is the solution. He is the encouragement. He is the cup of water. He is the hope. He is the hero. He is the brave one. So Jesus saw this more clearly than anyone. Let me pray for us. 
God, I pray that as we open up Your Word, that we would see clearly that You, Lord, You are our only hope. God, let us see the things that fire You up. Let us see what is it, what is it that just ate Christ up, just in His heart, that that evoked a passion in His heart towards the, the emotion, the display of anger. Help us to see that. Ultimately, for Your name and Your glory and the gospel going forth and for our good. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 20, 31. Let me just read this to you real quick. This is the whole reason of John. John explains why he's writing the book of John. John 20, verse 31. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So everything that we're reading through John, it's God telling us about Jesus, that by believing in him, we may have life. So together, let's read. You silently, I'll read out loud. John chapter 2, 13 through 25. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. In making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So let's begin with the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus going up to Jerusalem. I'll go ahead and tell you, there is a great debate between many scholars, really, really smart guys and gals out there that will say, there is definitely only one time that Jesus clears the temple. And then there's equally amount of very brilliant people that would say, no, matter of fact, there's two times that Jesus clears the temple. I'm here today to tell you that factually, I do not know which one it is. However, isn't it just like us that Jesus would need to clear the temple twice? Isn't that just like us? That on the beginning of his public ministry, he would come in and say, guys, what are you doing? No. And then on the end of his ministry, he comes back in and says, you know what? You're still not getting it. And do it again. It's just like us that Jesus would need to clear the temple again. But I don't know if he did it once or twice. But what we do know is that he did it once, for sure. And it's kind of awkward, and it's uncomfortable when we read it. Because we want, we want to box our Jesus into our box of what we think love is. Love is this... And when something looks like this, a whip and a watow, that's not loving. But you see, God is love, so therefore the anger of Christ displayed in the temple has to fit in the box of love. It has to. It can't not because Jesus is love. 
But the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So from our perspective, when we study about the Passover, it's a time where we can look back and, and think of Old Testament history where Moses, he goes to, to Pharaoh, and he's saying, let my people go. The people of Israel were, were slaves. It's not supposed to be like this. God's people aren't supposed to be slaves, and they're slaves. Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, I will not let your people go. And so there's a plague and another plague because Pharaoh keeps saying no to God Almighty. And in the end, the tenth and final plague is the death of the firstborn, the firstborn child, the firstborn animal. But part of the Passover and the beautiful miracle of the Passover is that God said, Kill a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And, and as the angel of death passes through the city, those children, those firstborn will be spared. They will be spared. They will live. There was a great wailing that night, as you can imagine. I even imagine some of the Israelites that were faithful, that put the blood on the doorpost them hearing the wailing, them seeing the dead children. I, I'm sure that there was a rejoicing that my son is okay, but this guy's son is not. There's some kind of, we're slaves to them, but it's not supposed to be like this. These children are dead. I'm sure there was a wailing across the city, not just from the Egyptians. It's not supposed to be like this. So Jesus goes up to Jerusalem during the Passover. Now, he's done this, you see, because part of what Christ came to do was he came to obey everything that God has told us to do. And part of that was to go to the temple, offer a sacrifice during the Passover. So since he was a little boy, he's going to the temple. So from our perspective, we can see, okay, Christ does this. Okay, check. He goes to the temple. Check. You know, when he was 12, he went to the temple and he sat down and wowed the religious leaders. Remember the story? He sits and talks to them and, you know, and mom and dad go home. You know, I could tell a story right now about Cindy and I and my family being in New York with our school and we're on a, this field trip and we're at this church, you know, this, this cathedral and Cindy, I think at the time, was looking at the candles, lighting a candle, doing something. I'm looking at the statues, and you know, we, we were separated, my sister and I. The next thing I know is that we find each other, and everyone in our group is gone, including mom and dad. Including mom and dad. And they did not come back for us. And finally, we were like, okay, they're going, they're going. Like, this is in the kind of late afternoon, but it's not dinner yet. And now it's dinner time. Now it's dinner time. And the officer's like, do you know, I don't remember how it went down, but do you know where they're going to be eating? Yeah, they're going to be at Carnegie Deli. Well, that's just down the road and over there. You know, we get to Carnegie Deli. We see mom and dad. We see the whole crew and, you know, eat, you know, smacking, making people mad. Or eat, you know, they're eating, you know, Big sister, it's, what are y'all doing? I'm just kind of like, what's up, Adam? My buddy is like, man, we were lost in New York. But Jesus, mom and dad come back, you know. <laughs> Even Jesus, mom and dad. No, my mom and dad, they just knew we we're going to be fine. But Jesus, mom and dad, it's like, he, he looks at them and says, you know, I'm about my father's business. You know, I'm doing this. I'm in the temple. Things are fine. Jesus, from his perspective, he gets temple life. He understands it. Matter of fact, he established from the heavens what temple life was supposed to be, what the structure of the temple was going to be. So often we just want to look back at the OT and we just want to say, no, no, no. And it's like, God, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you set up. No, he knows what he's doing. He knows what he set up. 
He knows He didn't set something up to be our salvation, but to point towards Jesus. And these things start to make more sense from our perspective. But just think of Christ on this particular Passover. He's been coming. He and His family come. They come into Jerusalem. And the norm is kind of across the valley. If you don't want to carry your lamb with you or your ox or for the poor, the birds, you don't want to carry your bird cages, across the valley you go and you, and you buy it. You buy the ox, you buy the lamb, you buy the birds, and you carry it over here into the temple and you offer that as a sacrifice. So Jesus gets that. That's good. That's business. That's okay. That's, that's not just economy. That's helping people. Now, I'm sure there's some extortion going on. I'm sure it's prices are going up in different things. But for the most part, there's nothing wrong with the fact that people are selling things. There's nothing wrong with people exchanging money. People coming in from so many different places and exchanging money to pay the temple tax that they had to pay. There's nothing explicitly wrong with that. Now, how you do it in your business ethics, there could be things wrong with that. And later in the other passages, Jesus does say, talks about a den of robbers and thieves. So Jesus walks into this temple, and all of this selling is going on right there in the temple now. It's not over here. And so part of him is seeing, wait, things aren't supposed to be like this. This isn't the way it works. So there's an initial, wait a minute, no, this ain't right. So just on one level. But at the same time, Jesus, every time, I just wonder, every time he's coming in to the temple for Passover, he knows that he is the Passover lamb. He knows that. He knows that the lamb that he's offering to be sacrificed, he knows full well that it is not sufficient. He also knows that he has no need of it. Jesus never needed a lamb to be slain for him because he is the perfect lamb. But in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Again, the business itself is mostly fine. Some things were off, but mostly it was fine. It was the place is not right. The place of them doing this is not right. So Jesus begins, he picks up some cords and he makes a whip. And he starts to drive them all out of the temple. And he drives them all out of the temple. Now, when you grow up in different places of the world, you just learn how to do things. It probably wasn't odd for a little, little boy growing up in that area to, to know how to make a little whip. To, oh, here's, a, here's some livestock. We need to get them out of the street. And okay, well, that's what we do. I don't know. We don't know how Jesus knew how to make a whip, but he knows how to make stars. So I guess he can make a whip. And he does. And this is not what happens. He doesn't make a whip, and, and he's not, okay, come on, guys. I don't really care for what's happening here. You know, there's some commentators that almost write, and they're so afraid to make it sound like there's any violence going on. They're like, and it, you know, it was just, it wasn't really a whip. It was more like just some stuff that he's just kind of flinging around. It's like, are you kidding me? No, it's a whip. It's a whip. It's violent. Now, I believe that Jesus is using this whip on the animals. I don't believe that there's a cruelty going on, that he's just trying to... It's not a cat of nine tails. It's not the same kind of whip that Jesus is going to receive here soon. It's a regular old whip that's used to get the animals out. And the people follow. I don't think Jesus is sitting there whipping people. And if he did... You know, I don't know what the laws were at the time. But I've gotten a whipping before, hadn't I, Mom? But Jesus made a whip. He was furious. It's not because he was bored with the way the temple was. It wasn't like, oh, 
They're streamlining it, streamlining everything now. They're they're making it they're making it work faster now. I'm just so bored with this. I'd rather it be a different system. No, he was mad with what was going on. He was angry. So he made a whip. He drove out. And it specifically separates the sheep from the ox. Those get driven out. And then later he's like, and take the birds out. Can you imagine Jesus applying the whip to the doves, the pigeons? You know, it would have been more than violent. It would have been pretty scary, super scary. And I I believe this was a scary moment. I believe any children around would be crying with Jesus clearing the temple out. the, The same Jesus that later we're going to see, he says, let the little children come to me. So we're not talking about the temple was just so busy. It's always busy during the Passover. There's always people. There's always, it's always a little loud in there at the Passover. It's not just that Jesus wants a certain order because even even later we're going to see, he says, let the little children come to me. And, And little children come to you without a lot of order. So Jesus is okay. The order's not quite there. But what he's not okay with is what it's been turned into. What he's mostly angry about is what it is not anymore. And what it is not anymore It's not a place of worship. It's not a place of worship. Not only is it too loud, but it's just a place of transactions now. It's not a place of confession. It's not a place of worship. This has been called by many people the second miracle that's recorded in John. The first miracle we talked about last week, it's Jesus turning the water into wine. This second miracle, and you really have to get into this for a second. Here's Jesus, who we read in Isaiah. There's no reason for us to think that he's just this massive Goliath-looking man. Here's Jesus. He makes a whip, and he really clears the whole temple out with a single whip. This is pretty miraculous that he's able to do that. John MacArthur, who is a great theologian, this is a quote from him. All it would take was one big burly guy to wrap his arms around him and say, whoa, whoa, what are you trying to do, buddy? That's all it would take. Imagine if you would, somebody coming in here right now with a whip. You're laughing, right? Because it's like one of us could take the guy out. One of us, on the backswing, we just grab it and pull it. Two of us are like, I've been waiting for this for a long time. (laughs) Why do we do that? You're taking the top, I'm taking the bottom. There are so many people in this temple. And Jesus makes a whip and he says, get out. And they say, okay. And they get out. This is the same temple that historians say that there was a time when there were people that were displeased with the high priest, so they start throwing lemons at the high priest. They're just pelting the high priest with lemons. Bam, bam, bam. And the high priest sends out his missionaries, and uh, his, his uh, mercenaries, not missionaries, <laughs> and kills a couple of thousand of them. This is miraculous that Jesus clears the temple. Don't miss Not just the miracle, but the authority of Jesus Christ. His authority that's going out. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. He says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. But you know, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will eat me up. I want to look at, uh, I'm going to read this to you. Psalm 69. 
We'll read a portion of this. Now this is David. This is where this comes from, where the disciples where the disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So in the Old Testament, there's, there's things that we look back on and it's like, that's, that's about Jesus. That's pointing towards Jesus. So here's David in a situation. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than their hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I've done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have become reproach. The dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So here's the disciples. And they're remembering David and all the stuff that was falling on David because David had a zeal for the Lord, for the Word of God, and standing up for the Word of God. David, the sinner. David, the man after God's own heart. David, the adulterer. The murderer. The one who not only can see things aren't the way they're supposed to be, the one that displays that things aren't the way they're supposed to be by his own life. And yet the mercy and love and grace of God, God's truth, transforms David, and David has a zeal for God Almighty, for the Lord God Almighty. Jesus is zealous. What is eating Christ up is the lack of worship that is going on in the temple. The true relationship that is supposed to be happening. In the garden, God made Adam and Eve, and there was fellowship, there was relationship, there was worship going on. And then because of the fall, there was separation, and from then on, death entered in, punishment entered in, curses entered in. Brokenness was there. Wars, and we see it, and we see it, and we see it. But God in his grace from the beginning said, I will send someone who will make all things new. And Jesus, in this moment, he is reminded that you still don't get it. You're still, you're still doing what you always do. This is supposed to be a picture of how God is merciful to you. This is supposed to be a picture of how the blood of the lamb was on the doorposts. And all you're concerned about is just ease and, and temple management. And it's become a thing of how we do it. And it's not a thing about worshiping God anymore. Oh, we do that. We try to get super creative in our churches. We want to we be more creative than the next church down the street. So we, there's nothing wrong with creativity. But if it's done in a spirit of just for the system, for the system, it becomes something that it's not supposed to be. Or in our community groups, in our comm groups, or at our dinner table, for the fathers that are out there that just feel like, man, I can't get this family worship thing together. And you got all these books about how you're supposed to do it. And you just feel like a big loser because it's like, man, I don't. There's a sense to that where it's like, yes, I want to lead my family in worship. Let that be your drive. I want my family to worship. But what happens is, man, I'm just not like these guys. If I could just get it right like them. And then you kind of get angry that you're not like these other dads. And that begins to be your drive. Or maybe you're not healthy enough. 
or maybe fill in the blank with whatever it may be that kind of drives your passions and even during the time of your worship can lead you astray from worshiping God Almighty. Zeal for your house will consume me. And zeal was consuming Jesus and he cleared the temple out. God is to be glorified. He's to be honored. He's to be magnified. And here's the thing. Before you think that this is just some awful thing that God is demanding, here's the thing. It's a temple. It's a temple for people to go to to think about God Almighty. So it's not just about God alone. It's about people to be thinking about God, for God to remind them of how much I love you. I love you. This is what I've done for you. This is what I will do for you. This is about relationship being restored. This is about pointing forward. Jesus so much loves your relationship with God that he's okay to make a whip and drive out the things that are causing you not only to not worship God, but for you to see or for you to even think, Lord, these other things are a little more superior to me right now. Ah, these are a little more satisfying than you right now because Jesus knows that he alone can satisfy you. He's the only one that can fill your love tanks and help you. So him driving out the temple, I, I asked Nick yesterday, one of the high school guys, I said, I said so, so it seems like a very angry Jesus, right? He's like, yeah. I said, but Jesus is a God of love, so how do you reconcile that? And he's like, well, I guess that somehow in there, Jesus was ultimately displaying his love for people. And I was like, I think there's something in there. I think that's what's going on. Zeal for my father's house, zeal for God, and an anger against the things that distract worship. But Jesus is coming in to restore, to be the restorer. Jesus said, Destroy this temple. So the Jews, right before that, the Jews said, What sign do you show us for doing these things? So they're asking for a sign. They just missed a sign. They just missed that he said, he cracked the whip a few times and cleared the whole temple out. They missed that. But what sign do you show to do these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures in the word that Jesus had spoken. So here's something you need to know. When this was going on, when he was doing this, and when he said this, when he said that destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again, they were probably right there with the religious leaders. Like, how are you, how are you going to do that? Water to wine. I mean, you blew our minds, but come on. This would be fantastic. And maybe some of them are like, let's do it. Let's. Now, here, here's, a, here's a good thing for you to, to keep in mind. Jesus said to them, destroy this temple. We're going to fast forward to the end before the trial. He's on trial. They say that Jesus said that he was going to destroy the temple. That's just a little biblical thing that they twisted what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to destroy this temple. Jesus said, you destroy this temple. So they twisted what Jesus was saying. However, we know the truth is that God the Father is the one who poured his wrath out on God the Son. So Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, I, I, just, I can picture some of the disciples sitting around after his death, resurrection, after his ascension. I could see them sitting around, and I, I don't think it goes like this. I don't think that they're sitting there, and one of them's like, okay, let's... Let's keep making these connections. I think that's going on. They're like making connections for weeks and weeks and weeks of that was Jesus. He said this and that's what, ah, I don't think that they were sitting there and like, okay, wait a minute. The temple, remember when he said, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. 
Okay, yeah, 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 that was him. Okay, check. I got that one. Put that down for me. I got that one. I figured that one out. And they move on. No, I think that it was when they realized these things, it's the reason why we're sitting here today. The disciples remembered these things, and they said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He's the temple. He was destroyed. He was raised up. Wait a minute. He, t- he tells us to go into all the world. Man, we're going to go into all the world so the world can know. These theological truths didn't just stay right here with them. These connections didn't just stay right here with them. It moved from their heads to their hearts and their hands out in service. It wasn't a detached theological observation. They just watched their master be brutally murdered. He was destroyed. The most outrageous anger applied in all of history was God pouring out his wrath on the Son. Jesus being our substitute. And at this point, it is directly a punishment for us, not just a displeasure with a system that leads us away from worship. It's that we sinners are saying to God the Father, you are unworthy of worship and something else is better and I don't want to have anything to do with you. And Jesus steps in and he knows that the only answer to that, to sin, is death. And Jesus comes into this world to be the sacrifice, to be the blood that is poured out, to be the body that is broken, the temple that is broken for us to bring us back into relationship with God. Jesus is the hero. In this moment of clearing the temple out, he's not whining. You know, oh, look what you're doing to my dad's house. Stop it, stop it. He's going to get mad. No, he's not whining. He's eaten up with his father not being worshipped and us being blind. Sin. Sin is something that we should be angry about. In our own lives, the lives of others, the lives of our church, within our city. What's the solution? The solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't think the solution is for us to go into the city with whips today. I think this was a specific moment, but I do think there's those kind of whip conversations that we have with people. I think that we need to be able to get comfortable in our own times with the Lord where we feel his displeasure in the things that we're doing, the things that we're saying. And we need to welcome the continual cleansing. We need to welcome him coming in, if you would, into our hearts with the whip and saying, this thing over here, it's in the wrong spot. Even the good stuff, it's just in the wrong spot. This is a spot for God Almighty. He's our hero. He comes in because he loves us. So in conclusion, I just want to ask you, because this passage goes on to say at the end that Jesus knows our hearts. He knows our hearts. How's your love for God? How is your love for God? Are you resting in the work of Christ? Do you see that that Jesus as the lion, the roaring lion clearing the temple is also the Lamb of God that is cleared out of Jerusalem? The The very lion clearing the people out is the very lamb that gets cleared out and slaughtered on the cross so that we can know God, so that we can be forgiven. How's your love for God? When you think about what Christ has done for you, does it compel you towards love and good deeds? Do you worship him? Is there a joy in your heart? What are the obvious sins in your life that you're giving into? Ask God to help you to hate those things. We're real cautious to use the word hate, but we need to hate our sin. We need to hate the very things that God hates. 
And when you are applying that into the lives of others, tread very carefully. Because that whip was in the hand of the master that knows all hearts. We know not even our own heart. So when you are gospeling to somebody and helping them, you don't know everything that's going on in their heart. But there is a sense of truth that we say, God, help me to speak into their lives. There's things that I see right now that, that I just think that, that they're missing you. They're not seeing you. They're not experiencing your love, your mercy. Help me to help them to see that they need you. And what are the good things in your life that tend to continually push the worship of God down? I could give you many examples, but just think about that. What are the good things in your life? John Piper says that sometimes God's greatest gifts to us are his greatest adversaries. His greatest gifts can be the very thing that still worship away from God Almighty. My wife, can, I can so much aim for her love and acceptance in my life that that's what I have to have. If I don't have her love in my life, her acceptance in my life, my day is destroyed. But if Christ is my hero, if he is the, the ultimate love in my life, I can better handle my wife's unlove towards me or my wife feeling my unlove towards her. But Sherry cannot be my hero. My children cannot be my hero. Circumstances, jobs cannot be our hero, cannot be what we're aiming at. We look to God to satisfy us. And those, those of you that, that don't know Christ, that are here today, what I do hope that you do here is that, yes, Jesus hates sin. He does. But Jesus also hates the fact that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. But he is also saying, in this passage, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up. He's saying, I'm the solution. I am the solution to the sin problem. And he is the solution for the very thing in your life that is causing you to not feel love, the things that are causing you to continue to live a life of brokenness. Jesus can come in and save your soul, give you hope, and pour love out into you. He can forgive you of sin because he ultimately took the full wrath of God on the cross and rose from the dead. And lastly, how's your love for people? Do you have a burden for the city? Do you look around the city and think, I actually have a burden for the people of the city? Now, because there's so many of us in this room, it's going to look different. What I want to ask you to do this week is try to say, God, is there anything that you actually want me to, to be eaten up with? Is there something that I need to wake up to when I look around in my environment, my family? Is there something in my family that I, I need to wake up? Something's not right. And Jesus, you're the hero for that. What is it? Is there something in my neighborhood that I need to wake up to? Something that's not right that should cause me to have a dissatisfaction? Help me to see what that is and in my city. Are you actively seeking to help the believers in your circle of influence? Helping them to see the idols of their heart. So Jesus comes into the temple and worship is not happening. That is the story of my day-to-day -day life. Jesus comes in to the temple because we are the body of Christ. We are his temple. And he comes in and daily sees that worship is not happening. But by his grace and mercy, he also sees that worship is happening because of his spirit. And so my prayer for us as a church is that we would be a church that would confess sin to one another, that would run the race with one another, and would be dissatisfied with anything that is in our lives that is saying, 
I'm bored. I'm bored with life. I'm just satisfied with just doing church and doing whatever. But that we would say, we, we want to have a passion for God's name, a passion for God's people, and a passion to reach the lost for Christ. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you so much for who you are, for what you're doing. For your mercy, your grace, we thank you that you came into the temple and you cleared it out. But God, we thank you that you didn't just do that just to, just to prove a point. You came to point to the fact that you are the ultimate temple. You are the one that was going to be destroyed. So Jesus, thank you for what you do for us, what you've done for us. Thank you that your blood was poured out for us. Thank you that your body was broken for us. Thank you for the fact that you're eaten up when we're not worshiping you. And it's a thing of love. It's a thing that you don't fall asleep on the clock. You're continually, through your spirit, going to wake us up to see you. I pray that you would wake us up and help us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.